and welcome to Talking Aussie Books, a weekly podcast bringing readers and writers of Australian fiction together. I'm Claudine Tanellis. As an avid reader and passionate advocate for Australian fiction, I make it my mission to spotlight local talent. So if you're looking for your next read or simply want to learn more about the Australian literary scene, this podcast is for you. Grab yourself a cuppa, sit back and relax. Last year, I was lucky enough to meet my next guest in person at a conference, learning that her debut novel had been picked up by HarperCollins with publication pending. Later in the year, I had the chance to catch up with this lovely lady again in her home state and to find out more about her book. Naturally, I couldn't wait to chat with her on the podcast. So without further ado, let me introduce Jo Dixon. After a career in travel and event coordination, Jo decided to make a tree change to rural Tasmania, where she lives on acreage and manages a growing collection of animals. Around the same time as this move, Jo decided it was time to take her interest in writing seriously and subsequently completed a master's in writing, along with a number of other notable writing courses. The result was The House of Now and Then, published by HQ Fiction. A beautifully written, evocative, intriguing and heartrending tale about a decades-long mystery, deadly secrets and the consequences of discovering the truth. I absolutely loved it, and I know many of you out there will too. And so I'm delighted to welcome Joe to the podcast today. Hi, Joe. Hello, Claudine. Lovely to be here. So lovely to have you. So how wonderful that after months of anticipation, we finally get the chance to chat about this fabulous book. <laughs> it's been a long time coming. The book has been a project of mine, I guess, for years, absolutely years. I think I finished it in 2017. So to coming to that point where I'm talking to people about it and people are reading it and having feelings and opinions and thoughts about something that's been with me for so long, it's exciting and it's, to be honest, really enjoyable. How excited are you to be a published author? There's, a, there's, there's this mix of excitement, fear. Um, there is certainly you know, a feeling of being quite terrified of, of what's coming and you go on this this roller coaster ride of, Highs, highs where you, you know when you get the offer, when you get uh, those little wins along the way, and it's thrilling. And then you also face that reality of knowing that your book's going to be out there and it's going to be judged, and not everyone's going to like it. And finding out about the industry and, and things that you didn't know. So there's sort of a ride between getting a contract, getting signed, picked up, or what have you, and the book coming out. So you've just got to go with that flow. So excited? Yeah, definitely. I've wanted this for a really long time. Yeah, fantastic. Now, as you said, it was a long time coming for you, Joe. So I wondered, and you said you had been working on this book for a long time before it was accepted for publication. So I wondered if you could tell me a little bit more about that journey. Well, the full writing journey begins when I was five years old. <laughs> <laughs> no, seriously. I, first time I decided I wanted to be a published author, author I was in well, grade one or grade two, and I'd written something and my teacher said, this is brilliant, go and read it to the class next door. And I did, and I loved that moment and the accolade and the, you know, the response I got. The next day she picked someone else, but I didn't accept that. I went along anyway and tried to read my book too, or my story too. So um, I've been clawing for this for a long time. <laughs> At various stages through my life, I've, I've written in different forms and different shapes. In 2009, I decided to get serious about writing and I started doing courses I started going to conferences the romance writers conferences it was a brilliant place to sort of dip my toe into learned a lot along the way did the masters the house of now and then there were sections of it that were written as part of my master's degree most of what I wrote 
for the masters didn't make it into the book, but the, the kernel was set and it grew from there. This book was actually finished in 2017. It was submitted. I pitched. I was requested. Different people read it. I had some beautiful rejections, uh, which were both encouraging and sad. I got a manuscript assessment. I tweaked it. I rewrote bits of it. And then in 2021, I pitched it through the Australian Society of Authors Pitch Fest or Literary Speed Dating. And within three weeks, I was signed with a two-book contract with Harlequin HarperCollins. So it's been a long journey and then it happened in a snap of a finger. So, um, yeah, don't give up. Yeah. On that, I kind of wanted to ask you, were there times where you wanted to give up or were you always determined to make it happen? There were definitely times I wanted to give up and there were definitely times I thought, what am I doing? Uh, You know, this is never going to come to fruition. I'm wasting my time. There's so much else I could be doing. We were living down here in Tasmania by then. We had the animals, the gardens, kids. You know, there was so much that needed my time and attention. I thought, I've got to put this aside. I'm just wasting my time. And I'd put it aside for a few months and then the stories would start appearing in my head again and the characters would talk to me and I'd I couldn't walk away the walking away was harder than the persisting so I kept coming back to it so yeah it pays not to give up it pays not to give up but one also has to recognize the cost of persisting you've got to be honest about that it does take time and you're going to get rejected and you have to have a, be a little bit tough about it uh, and say so that by persisting with this I have to accept the knockbacks as well so for some people it happens very quickly for others it can take like me, years, literally years and years to get to this point. So, The House of Now and Then. Now, I know we chatted in Hobart and you mentioned that the book was loosely based on the town that you live in. And having just visited the Huon Valley, reading your book took me straight there. The moody weather, the cold, the cheerful fires, the beauty of the channel and the spectre of Bruni Island in the distance, not to mention the small town personalities, which I thought were were brilliant. So I wanted to ask you, Joe. did you always want to set your novel in your local area and did you have any reservations about doing so? When I came to Tasmania, I fell in love with it, um, absolutely fell in love with it, and I knew I wanted to set my stories down here, partly because of the ambience, the natural environment, the beauty of it, but also there's something a little bit dark and, and gritty about Tasmania as well, both in its history and its environment. There is danger. People People die on Mount Wellington in view of the city, literally in the snow. So there's sort of this, this overview of threat a little bit in this beautiful environment. So I knew I wanted to set it down here, besides the fact that I was going to write something that I could really immerse myself in. So I wanted to write from what I could see and feel and experience. Uh, so, yes, it was, it was always going to be down here. As far as writing about a small village um, in a rural area that bears a startling resemblance to my own <laughs> location. I didn't have concerns about it. There, there are, There's really only one character who is moulded on someone in my own village and she is delighted to be feet. She contributed actually a small plot twist to the book, which was significant. So I wasn't worried about that. I don't think I cast a bad light on this little area. So we're down uh, what's called the, the channel on the water looking out over Bruni Island. Um, I think the area is reflected quite well in the book uh, and the people in it. So, no, I didn't have any concerns about about writing so close to home. Now, before we get to talking about the, the actual book, I kind of just wanted to say there just seems to be a plethora of books being set in Tasmania at the moment. Mm. It's almost like a fashion. <laughs> to, it, to is. Set, set it is. It is. We're very Tasmania. on trend. 
Indeed, you are very on trend. And I wanted to ask you, did you have an opinion about why people are so attracted to setting their novels in Tasmania? It's a really good question. Um, I think it's for many of the same reasons that I wanted to set it down here is that it is nature dominates down here. It's not a very big state, but there are corners of it that are so dramatically different from other corners of it in other areas. So I think there's variety and there's an intensity to some of the areas down here. I think it's it hasn't been featured greatly, so it's to a, in, until recently quite a new location. I think the cities were featured for so long and most Australian books, you know, the capital cities of Sydney, Melbourne. Then, of course, came Rural Noir, so then we were looking at the Outback and all, all the rural crime books and that got a really good run and, and it's still going strong. People like to hear that. But I think Tasmania is not the outback. It's something lusher but also darker and quite charming in its own way too. So I think it's just it's people are looking for points of difference, yeah, something, something a little bit unique. Mm. And I think if you didn't know much about Tasmania or if you didn't know much about Hobart or, uh, you know, the Huon Valley or down near Bruni Island where you are, I think it makes you want to go. It makes you want to go and yeah. see it. Which is yeah. a good thing. That's not a bad thing, we, we, you know. Um, and and I think probably the popularity of Tasmania as a destination has fed into the popularity of Tasmania as a location in fiction. You know, they talk about the Mona effect down here with our Museum of New Art. We have become a tourism destination, which is nice. Yeah, indeed. All right. So, Joe, can you tell me more about the story of the House of Now and Then and what inspired you to write it? Okay, so the story is, it's a dual timeline. The present day is 2017, because that was when I wrote the book, um, and decided not to bring it into the into the present day because of, you know, all those complications around pandemics. So in 2017, we have Olivia, who has made some really huge mistakes in her life, and they're very public ones, and she's been absolutely eviscerated in social media and in, in um, online. So she's run away to get away from all that. She's holed up in a rural uh, location, semi-rural location, quite isolated. And then a stranger knocks on her door, which is quite terrifying because she thinks that the friend that she put in jail has sent someone to find her. But he turns out to be an uh, Englishman who's looking for someone who lived in the house 30 years earlier. So that's sort of what's happening in the present day. We switch back to the uh, 30 years earlier, which is 1986. And we find out the story of Pippa, who is a bit of a wild child, and her best friend Jeremy, who come down to the house to house sit, and they meet. A, she meets a local boy called Leo, and it's the story of what happened that summer, which ties into the search for this woman who is Pippa, that's happening in the present day. So we've got a present day time uh, story arc um, about Olivia and her trials and tribulations and search for the answers to this cold story, uh, cold case. And then we've got the story of Pippa, Leo and Jeremy and what unfolded that summer. So the mystery is revealed. Yeah, an absolutely brilliant story. It has a deep sense of place and some seriously flawed characters. I wanted to talk about Pippa and Olivia for a moment. Now, mm. Pippa, you mentioned, was your wild child character. I thought she was fabulous. She was assertive, an excellent judge of character, and she definitely knew her mind. But she was almost like the opposite of Olivia on the character scale, who was hiding from the world and taking on the blame for something that was most definitely not her fault and allowing her confidence and her self-esteem to suffer in the process. Did you find it difficult to write these two characters, almost polar opposites in many ways, 
Or perhaps should I ask, did you find it easy to write one character more than the other? Definitely the last. I found Hippa came to me quite clearly. She's a strong young woman in the 80s. She's travelled. She's adventurous. She doesn't take much crap from anyone. She stands up to people. I found her quite easy to write and she stayed in the form that she was right from the get-go. Olivia was much harder and she really evolved over the period of writing. Um, even from the first draft right through the edits, she improved and became clearer. And I found that with Olivia, the thing that is behind where she is in her life is that horrible, clawing feeling of shame. You know, she she feels such intense shame for what has happened that she can't face the world. And when I realised that that was the deeper emotion that was driving the behaviour, she became clearer and easier to, for me to write. Uh, but that only came... Quite honestly, that only came in the last couple of years. A theme that runs through this book and which sadly often reflects the experience of many women in our society is women being punished for men's bad or even criminal behaviour. And that's certainly what Olivia feels has happened to her and also what Angela, Jeremy's mother, feel has happened. I wondered if you could talk to this some more and whether this was something you specifically wanted to explore in the context of this novel. When I conceived of this novel many of these layers weren't present in my original thoughts they came as this as as the story came together over time when I realized when I started to structure what Olivia's backstory was and what had driven this great shame in her and I came to realize or recognize that the the problem was the blame that was placed on her by online armies of people and that's very hard to wear so I then sort of delved deeper into it and, and made it quite obvious in the story, direct in the story. It was said, you know, through the words that so often the woman is, is blamed. You know, we only have to look at so many celebrity cases where, you know, it's not the poor man's fault. He was led astray by the by the vixen, by the home wrecker, by whatever. And they don't recognise that he's an adult. He's capable. You know, he's made decisions. He's probably orchestrated or or at least been a major contributor to what's gone on. So, yes, I definitely, as, as my writing of the book evolved, delved deeper into that. And then with Angela, Jeremy's mother from the 80s, her story was even darker. Um, and, I, and, again, this is really interesting. I plotted most of this book, but it's only as I came to rewriting it and editing it that I recognised the parallels between the two stories. You know, Angela has shame in her life, this immense shame in her life. Her own family blames her for what happened to her, and I won't give too much away, but she wears that shame and it ultimately has disastrous effects on everybody. In the case of Livia, you know, it really does prevent her from moving forward in her life. In fact, with Angela as well, it it affects everything that she does. It affects her relationship with her son. I mean, it, it, yeah. is, it is, as you say, a devastating consequence. So thank you for explaining that a little bit more. So I wanted to talk about Leo. He was a, such a lovely character. I really enjoyed oh, reading about I Leo. Love Leo. Yeah. But something that Pippa picked up on fairly early in their relationship was that Leo wasn't able to stand up to his parents. He had really no agency in his own life and he felt beholden to his parents on many levels, obligated to walk the path that they had so clearly laid out for him. Mm. Said that. He was only 19. I was a little bit conflicted about this because 
whilst I recognise that at 19, you know, he was an adult, I guess, and without knowing what was yet to come in the story, I just felt a little bit like, oh, were they controlling parents or did they, like many parents, just want the best for their children? Can you talk a little bit about that? Leo was a, when I was writing him, I was conflicted about him too. I didn't want to create this perfect young man. You know, he, he's, he's a love interest. I don't think we're giving much away with that by saying that. He's a love interest for Pepper, um, an intense relationship that, that forms quite quickly. And I wanted to show him as a young man of strong values and strong morals and clear judgment, but at the same time to be, feel quite beholden to his parents. And I think, you know, he he'd just finished high school. He's done, he's just done the, the Sydney to Hobart race, so he's had some um, taste of being independent but he still feels he owes his parents and I won't give away why. And that sense of being beholden to his family in many ways leads to what happens next. I think Pippa recognises it in him. She sees that he is this, an amazing young man, but that his his flaw is this, this needing to appease his parents and do what they want. Um, he tries to push back against it, but ultimately, without saying anything, ultimately he he doesn't. <laughs> In the end, he does what he is told uh, with disastrous consequences. I do recognise it as a flaw in him, but I was just like, oh, no. Come on, stand up for yourself. Yeah, yeah, (laughs) definitely. I think at the heart of this novel were two very beautiful love stories. And I wanted to know if you could tell me about writing this and was it always your intention to write about love or was this more character-driven? I didn't have the intention to write about love. It wasn't even character driven to begin with. When I first, when I first conceived of this book, I I had two separate stories in my head. Uh, the 1986 story was its own entity, um, and I had to when I was when I was pulling this, this book together in my head, I was doing long drives. I had to drive my kids from where we lived into town and back twice a day. So that was an hour and a half in the morning, an hour and a half in the afternoon. So for three hours a day, I was in my own head. The kids were doing what they wanted in the back, chatting away, and I would be plotting. <laughs> and the I started tended to start with settings and scenarios that, that that really gripped me. So I wanted isolation. I wanted outcast. I wanted these, these elements of the book, and then the characters take, took shape around it. The love component of it was a surprise, to be quite honest. But love is. I never set out to write a romance book or a love story, but love drives so much in our lives. And it was almost inevitable that it was going to work its way in there. And also it gave us that up element in the book and motivation as well, I guess. So, yeah, it was nice when it came along. And I didn't want a saccharine ending to the story, but the ending that evolved, I think, was realistic for the present day timeline for Olivia. Yeah, and I guess. To that end, I mean, you didn't really tie everything up in a neat little bow. There was some level of, uh, I don't want to say, uh, I wasn't unsatisfied. I mean, everything was answered. Yes. But I, I felt regret at the end, yes. of, at the end yeah. of it. Did you think about the way that you wanted to end it? Was the ending always what you had in mind? No, the ending changed quite dramatically. And this is where uh, I had a brilliant editor and she gave me very strong feedback when we were doing structural edits. She said it's too it, it ties up too neatly, and we had to, I had to make a major change in the book, a major rewrite, and it was better for it. So the ending that is now in the book 
was not in the book that I originally submitted to HarperCollins. Trying to find a way to say this without giving anything away that I can't. So let's just say the ending was not what I originally planned. And I think the book is much better for not having bows at the end of the book. Well, I tell you what it does for me. My mind keeps turning to the end of the book and I keep thinking, what if this hadn't happened? Or what if this hadn't happened? You know, and it just kept making me go back and regretting various Mm. turning points of the story and wondering, you know, if if only if only if this I hadn't did. happened, yeah, yeah, and then then the outcome yeah. would have been different. And I think that's what made me love this book so much that there could oh. have just been so many different ways it could have ended. And it's not necessarily the easier decision to make as a writer. No. I, I think in my and my own life, we have these great in most people's lives. You have these great what if moments, mm. if only moments, and, and and the regrets. I think it's it's part of life that we make the wrong call or we make mistakes or we make the wrong decision or we take the wrong action and we have to deal with the consequences. And it's only in hindsight that you look back and go, if only I hadn't done that, where would I, where would my story have gone, like your personal story? Yeah. Um, I think it's reflective of life. But, yes, there is, and I have had that feedback from a number of people that, you know, this sense of regret over how it all finishes, for some of the characters there is not, the happy ending that could have been and there's lives that have been less because of the decisions that were made. If there was one thing you would like readers to take away from this novel, Joe, what would it be? I love this question. And I know you asked this of everyone. But I thought I'd be so prepared for it and I'm I'm still not. I want readers to have felt something. I didn't write this book, and although there are themes and elements in the book that have since risen to the surface, like the elements of shame and judgment for actions that involve you know, male and men and women. At the end of the day, I want people to have enjoyed it as entertainment. I want them to feel something for the characters. I want them to go away. If I have readers who can go away and still be thinking about the book, that is a great thing. I remember hearing a quote somewhere that, and I can't remember who said this, another author who said, quite often plot is forgotten but characters are remembered. And I thought if people remember some element of my story and some of the characters, you know, months after they've read the book, that would be that would be a good good outcome. I'd be very happy with that. Given your recent experiences, do you have any tips to offer aspiring authors out there about the industry or about the publishing process, for example? Of course, my most obvious tip is don't give up because I am um, I'm candidate for the evidence of that. But my probably my strongest tip is, and it sounds obvious, is write. Because you you can learn how to write by doing courses, by reading books, by attending conferences and workshops, and and that's all important. But you don't learn how you write and how your best technique until you put it into practice. So, for example, we're all you know so often we're told, told, instructed, taught to power on through, do that vomit first draft, pour it all out. You know, don't go back and edit, don't re reread I do I I go back and reread my chapters Um, I edit as I go quite often and no matter how much I try to do it the way that we're meant to do it I found what worked best for me Um, if I come in in the morning and sit down and reread the work from yesterday tidy it up a little bit it puts me back into the story it gives me confidence that I can actually 
string words together, it gets me back into it. So my biggest tip is write a lot and figure out what works for you and don't feel guilty for not doing it the way we're supposed to do it. That's brilliant. Thank you so much for sharing that, Joe. Welcome. Okay, so what's next for you? Are we, you know, I know it's, I always feel really guilty asking this question because you've just, you know, gone through this marathon <laughs> effort to get your first book out in the world and it's so wonderful and it's beautiful. But everybody wants to know, is there another book coming out soon? Yeah, there is another book. So when I actually pitched to Harlequin HarperCollins, I had two manuscripts and they read both of them and they contracted me for both books. So I, I got the two book deal. So the second book is already written and we're just about to start editorial on it. So that I believe will be coming out in 2024 at some point. So I'm diving straight in, back into the next one and at the same time starting to write book three, which I have my head is bursting with ideas for book three and characters and I can't wait to get started on it. So House of Now and Then out now um, and working, you know, getting that um, known to people, getting it out in front of people. Book two, editorial stages are just beginning and book three is um, starting to emerge from the deep depths <laughs> of my mind. <laughs> oh, I absolutely love it, Joe. If listeners wanted to learn more about you and your books, where can they find you? I do have a website, which is joe-dixon.com. I've got, um, but mostly I'm on Instagram at Joe Dixon Writes. That's probably my preferred. I do have a Facebook writer page, Joe Dixon Writer or Writes, but probably the best place is Instagram or my website. And I love to hear from people. I would genuinely love to hear from people about what they think of this book of mine. Fantastic. Joe. I can't tell you how thrilled I am about the publication of your debut novel. Congratulations once more, my friend. I wish you every success with The House of Now and Then and the books that will no doubt follow. Thank you for joining me on Talking Aussie Books today. Uh, Claudine, it has, been, it has been my absolute pleasure. It is a delight talking to you and I would do it again next year if we can. <laughs> That's a wrap, folks. If you enjoyed this podcast episode, please drop me a line via my webpage at claudinetanellis.com, via Instagram, Facebook or Twitter. Alternatively, consider leaving a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or Google Podcasts. Until next time, happy reading.